Welcome to the eLaborate Topics Podcast, where we focus on lab-specific strategies for medical laboratory professionals. We're proud to be the healthcare detectives that work behind the scenes to get the results needed to influence medical decisions. Let's grow together and jump right into the lab. Welcome back to another episode of the Elaborate Topics podcast. I'm your host for today's show, Stephanie Whitehead, and I'm so glad you joined us for another episode because we've got a very special guest in the building, Dr. Banks. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Uh, Just for our listening audience, if you haven't listened to our previous episodes, stop, go to Apple, Spotify, Google, LabVine, because now we're on LabVine, wherever you hear your podcast and subscribe to our show so you don't miss any of our future episodes, or maybe you just want to pick up a couple of our past episodes. But uh, for your information, the Elaborate Topics podcast is a weekly podcast where myself and my other co-host, Stephanie, uh, I'm Stephanie, sorry, Taiwana Wilson and Lona Small bring you topics related to the laboratory and leadership to help you excel inside and outside of the laboratory. And I'm so happy because we have a very exciting episode for you today. So before we get started, Dr. Banks, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, your laboratory journey, and how you got to where you are today? Hi, thank you, Stephanie. So, um, well, um, where I am today, I'm the MLT program director for the Bronx, um, for the medical laboratory technician program at Bronx Community College. And how I got here (laughs) was a journey. I started off working as an intern in the clinical laboratory microbiology department specifically um, in uh, back in 2002. Um, They loved my work ethic and they asked me during my internship if I wanted a full time job. Uh, I then started working as an accessioner full time um, at the top of 2003 and I did that until I earned my bachelor's degree in um, allied health um, with a um, minor in biology and um, um, Spanish. I then uh, went on to uh, New York Medical College where I got my master's degree in epidemiology. Um, Sorry, yeah, in epidemiology, um, which is the study of epidemic diseases, which you all know. Um, And I was then promoted from technician to technologist and I worked there ever since. And then I wanted to do something in research, so I started um, venturing out to um, figure out how I can do that. And I landed a job at Bronx Community College, um, at which they primed me to become the program director because I had um, the background and skills. So now I'm I'm an assistant professor at Bronx Community College. I've so far I've done. Uh, which I like to coin as great work for for me. I've edited a book. I've um, wrote two chapters in two separate books. I've have I have two peer review publications um, that are going really well um, with the latest in COVID and higher education and the benefits of undergraduate research on student success. I also have two manuscripts that I did for creative writing, which is looking at African slaves and their descendants and overcoming the bondage of slavery. I really had fun writing that piece. Um, I also um, am doing, I'm doing research right now, uncovering and identifying learned helplessness in the black and brown community um, with efforts to helping students over 
overcome adversity in the classroom. So I'm looking at um, what can we do as educators to help students navigate the STEM classroom and specifically how we can help them do better in medical laboratory science classrooms um, to help increase the number of students that's graduating and, ident and identify those students and get them right into the workforce. Because as you know, we're experiencing a workforce shortage. Mm -hmm. So that's a little bit about what I'm doing. Well, I'm glad you brought that up. And it sounds like you're doing a lot of great work and further in this conversation. You know, you brought up some good things. And I, I want to dive deeper into that DE&I conversation because that's such a hot topic, especially in our profession um, right now. So I want to hear more about what you're doing in that space. But um, it is good that you brought up the workforce shortage because that is such a hot topic and a well-documented crisis in the laboratory science field. Um, the shortage uh, affecting the medical laboratory profession has been sourced back for many years, but we've felt it more um, impactfully here, you know, during the pandemic, post-pandemic, as we're combining that with, you know, technician and laboratory worker burnout, uh, retirement, and, you know, we're seeing a decrease in the number of students who are actually going into the program. Um, so uh, I, I have right here the 2018 ASCLS source projected a 13% increase in the nationwide need for a laboratory professional. So I wanted to ask you, Dr. Banks, in your professional opinion, uh, what is your perspective on the workforce shortage in the laboratory profession from both a local, and you said you were there in New York in the thick of things, you know, an area that was greatly impacted um, in the beginning of COVID and also on a national scale? That's a great question. Um, from my perspective, and and, and I'm, I'm understand that I'm coming from, you know, from 2002 all the way up to 2022. Right. Um, wow, that that shows my age in the laboratory um, in the lab world. <laughs> um, so, in two thousand two, um, when I first started, there was no issues in New York City, and also understand that I'm coming from the New York City perspective. I know there's other perspectives out there, um, and I want to recognize that. But um, this is from the New York City perspective from two thousand two. In two thousand two. And upward up to, up until about 2006, you know, there wasn't a real huge discrepancy between technician and technologist. Um, technician was typically someone who um, did not have a lot of years in the clinical laboratory, and a technologist was the level up, right? And that was what we achieved. Um, that was the promotion. After 2006, between 2006 and 2007. That's when they started to professionalize the profession of clinical laboratory science in New York City. And that's when the licensure came about. So everyone that worked in the clinical laboratory for at least five years were allowed to apply for, for grandfathering into uh, the licensure um, between 2006 and 2007. Once that licensure took place, that's when you saw the division really so real. Um, the vision that happened in New York in terms of the technician and the technologist. This one, it became really prominent. Many of the labs, um, they decided that they did not want to hire technicians. They wanted to hire technologists. And this was off of the misinterpretation of uh, DOH or New York City um, DOH uh, 
regulation or guideline that stated that technicians had to work under the supervision of a technologist. So laboratorians took that, laboratory administrators took that as we only want to hire technologists because um, they did not require supervision. And this started a, a problem where technicians were not getting jobs right out of college, um, and, and it was a problem. Um, this started to create the workforce shortage that we're seeing. It was multifaceted, of course, but this was one factor that created that um, that the workforce shortage in New York City. So that division um, allowed for the workforce um, shortage to perpetuate. Fast forward to 2000 to, to 2020 when the pandemic hit, we were met with work um, worker burn a burnout, healthcare burnout. Many of the clinical laboratories were already suffering from workforce shortage. Um, many of the many of the baby boomers were retiring, um, and they there were there weren't many people going into the profession. Um, there weren't any ads or marketing happening. Um, nursing and doctors, there's always ads, right? There's ads to be nurses, ads to be doctors. There's no ads to be laboratory professionals. You know so what? That's that true. I hadn't thought about that. Us. That I yes. hadn't thought about that. <laughs> yes, that was actually silencing us. Mm -hmm. So during the pandemic, now people were it was becoming apparent, okay, we really need laboratory scientists. So now we have schools trying to increase their enrollment size, but they have trouble because, and this has been a systemic problem, in order for us in the in the college or education area to increase the number of students enrolled in our program, we have to have internships ready to take the students and intern them. Absent of that, we have a course cap. So if we can, if we only have ten internships, we can only take ten students. That is also a, um, contributing to the workforce shortage because the number of people that's retiring, the number of people leaving for burnout, um, the number of people leaving because they want higher pay, um, is not being satisfied by the number of students that, that were graduating, um, and that's another factor: the pay. The pay before pre-pandemic was horrible. Mm -hmm. um, in New York City, at least, um, technologists are making about fifty, sixty thousand dollars a year. Um, during a pandemic and um, post-pandemic, we're now seeing bachelor degree um, students graduating and making and getting offers of a hundred and one thousand dollars a year. So now we're 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 able to um, satisfy and meet the salary requirements, but pre-pandemic we were not. Mm -hmm. um, and the pandemic did two things: it hurt us but it also helped us to realize the importance of clinical laboratory science um, in healthcare and boost up those salaries in New York City, at least. Mm -hmm. Wow. And so do you feel like um, when you talked about, uh, you know, uh, the, tech, the technicians not getting the same leverage that the technologists got, do you think that in your area that discouraged people from joining programs or for going into a technician program? Did you see a decrease in admission rate at that time? Yes, there was, there was, there has been and had been a decrease since that situation uh, occurred. However, um, programs like myself, we really understood what that 
regulation stated. Mm -hmm. And what it stated was, um, yes, technicians have to work under the guise or under the supervision of a technologist, a supervisor, or a, a laboratory director. But there's also a conjoining standard that requires that a lead technician, a supervisor, or lab director be on site for all shifts. Mm -hmm. So if you have a technologist on site, a technician can work. Um, and now that we're suffering with this workforce shortage, the issue is we might not have a technologist on site when the, when the technician is there. And now we're out of compliance. Right. Um, but that, then that goes to the second standard where each shift should have a supervisor. Mm -hmm. So if if you're following the standards, then no matter what, there's going to be a supervisor on shift, the evening supervisor, overnight supervisor, or day shift supervisor. And with the day shifts, you have the medical laboratory director, you have the administrator who's also licensed, um, and you have other technologists. So um, the issue was during the evening and overnight shifts, which was satisfied by that original um, standard of having supervision on every shift. But here's the problem during the workforce shortage, we're having problems with keeping supervisors on shift mm -hmm. because they were going to other hospitals getting paid more with the full-fledged staff. And so they made that transition. Mm. That sounds like a, I mean, the problem sounds so complex because you could do a mixed staffing model. Most mm -hmm. um, laboratories have more administrative staff or management staff on the day shift. So you could, you know, hire these technicians, add them to your day shift, and then move some of your technologists to nights or evenings. Or it sounds like there's a, a couple of different ways you could do it. But again, a very complex issue with the decrease of people going into the training programs, coupled with um, the pay, coupled with the increased need for lab technicians and phlebotomists and overall professionals during the pandemic. So can you speak to how you have worked um, with your community, with your um, uh, industry partners to resolve this in your area and speak to the to how you guys have been able to increase the enrollment rate and graduation rate for your technicians? You know, how have you seen um, yourself? How have you been able to insert yourself as a solution to this? Thank you for that. And 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 this I really have a I really have a working solution, right? <laughs> um, so the first thing I had to do was once I became program director, I had to understand from the perspective of the clinical laboratories what the hangup was in terms of why they did not want to intern technicians and why they did not want to hire technicians. Um, and so once I understood that. And I, I then had to create, and my team and I had to create a multifaceted approach to dealing with every single issue that they had. The first issue was a supervision issue. I then had to go back to DOH and understand the dynamics of that um, of that language. And that's when DOH helped me and gave me the other two standards that compounds um, that standard. So that standard works in tandem with the other standards. So if the other two standards are in compliance, then this standard is 
is or automatically in compliance. I then had to go out to the community of laboratories and have a conversation with them and invite the Department of Health <laughs> inspector with me on these calls and have him interpret that information for them. And then they had to feel comfortable with the information that was given to them. Um, they were able to ask questions and understand. And, and at that moment, they understood that they were misunderstanding the interpretation. So that allowed us to open that door. Um, so we were able to get internships from there. And then the other issue was they felt the technicians were not going advancing to the becoming technologists. So I said, okay, here's the resolve for that. If you hire a technician, hire them on the condition that within 12 months of their employment, they are enrolling into a senior college. Not only that, we reached out to 1199, which is the union um, in New York City, um, and we advocated for uh, tuition assistance for these employees. So they created um, a scholarship or um, an education grant that allowed for technicians that were hired in the clinical laboratories under their union, if they worked in the clinical laboratory for 12 months straight, they became unionized union members, the union will pay not 80%, but 100% of their tuition to go to the medical laboratory science program, the bachelor's degree program or master's degree program in New York City, mm -hmm. or New York State. Uh, so that was something that we, we, we helped to resolve. The second thing, the third thing we did was we tried to create um, articulation pathways to the bachelor degree programs. So we weren't able to articulate with any of the senior colleges, but we still created the pathway from technician to technologist. So during the um, internship, um, um, the 15 week internship that the students do, they have to complete several milestones. And one of the milestones is applying to um, the senior colleges so that they can get entry into the clinical laboratory science programs at the bachelor degree level. Many of our students will have tuition assistance um, through Tap and Pell pay for their first year. And if we can get them employed, and so they're working full-time in a histology lab or a clinical laboratory, um, they're going to school in the evenings or weekends. Um, after that first year of working, now 1199 will pick up their tuition furthermore to complete their bachelor's degree program. So they're getting, um, two areas that will help them pay for their tuition at the bachelor's and master's degree level. So that's how we were able to um, resolve some of the issues. And now we have an abundance of, of, of clinical laboratories reaching out to us, wanting to hire our students right out of college because of that pathway. They're like, okay, we'll hire them within 12 months, they'll go to the uh, a senior program. Within two years, they'll have the bachelor's degree. And now within two years or 2.5 years, we now have a technician that transitioned into a technologist. We don't have to retrain them because they were already part of our um, facility. It's just a, a, um, a rank change at this point and a salary bump. So many of the hospitals um, have been doing this, like Jacoby Medical Center, they have been doing this, um, and, and they have homegrown their technologists using this, this method, this pathway. Now, let me ask you this, because it sounds like this is wonderful, by the way, and um, 
I think the city of New York or the state of New York and the city of Brooklyn needs to congratulate you. You need an award. You are out there using your local influence to impact a national issue. Um, and so many people can learn from what you're doing. You know, sometimes we, we get in meetings, national meetings, and we try to look at how we can attack a large problem on a huge scale. But really, it just goes back down to you going to your community and trying to break down the barriers that are, you know, in the way of, of your, your community being successful, because that's where you're going to work. That's where you're going to see success. And that's where you're going to be able to make an impact is where you li- live and in your community. But it sounds like to do this, you had to create a lot of partnerships, you know, with yes. the health, you know, the, the director of the health department, um, with all of these schools, all of these things. And so, you know, if, if you don't live in New York, like myself, I, I'm in Texas. Um, and I, I work in the industry. I work in a clinical laboratory. You know, sometimes having uh, hospitals can see having students, you know, particularly MLT or even MLS students rotating through as a burden. You know, they, they decrease your productivity. I'm already trying to train my own staff. You know, it, it decreases my productivity, allow a student to come through and take away from productive work to train a student. So if you were to give advice to anybody out there listening, New York or not, what could clinical laboratories or even professionals working in the laboratory do to help support MLT or CLS programs? Because you can hear from you how passionate you are about, you know, your students and the the programs and them being able to have a rotation. And if you work with the hospitals, how successful their careers can be and how successful those rotations can be. But what would you say or advise to urge hospitals to accept students or to to support your schools? So the first thing, and and this is part of my um, promotion approach, um, uh, my marketing approach to clinical laboratories, is the first thing is you're getting a student right from um, college in which, as an intern, in which you can train them for free, Mm -hmm. right? So there is no uh, capital loss from training the students. The other game is the trainee, the trainer is now, it's now being reinforced their knowledge because peer to peer or mentor to mentee, uh, the mentor becomes more wise in what they're doing. So now training another person is building up that trainer. And now that institution is having a more qualified technologist or technician, whoever's training them. Mm-hmm. The other approach is if the student, if the the, the laboratory wishes to hire the student, right, um, as a, a, a for entry level clinical laboratory um, technician, um, then that also saves because the per, that individual can transition right into the um, workforce with very minimal training. So they already had the three months training for free. Um, now they're getting additional training for whatever else that they need to get into. Um, So it actually helps the laboratory a great deal. And then they can homegrown that technician into a technologist um, by allowing that student to go to school um, and continuing and pursuing their college uh, education. But I think I want to take a step back. It also, the, the education institutions have to play a part in that, right? So in New York City, we at the Bronx Community College, we have the only medical laboratory technician program 
in five boroughs. And so students that's coming out of our program, they have to be ready to work in the field. So what we've done is we really enhanced our program to have the machines um, that that is going to be seen in a clinical laboratory to make sure that they understand the theoretical and the practical knowledge, because we want them to get to the internship and not have to be retaught, but to be trained as a employee. That releases the burden from the clinical laboratory in having to teach theory and practice. If you're just training the employee as an, uh, um, straight training the student as a uh, a new employee, and they're doing new employee training, then that's much easier and less burdensome than teaching the student as a faculty and then showing them what they're doing as the practical level. So I think it's a multifaceted approach. Mm -hmm. And I think that was that is why we were able to get, um, for example, White Plains Hospital, because that was their concern. We don't want to yeah. have to teach the student. Um, and, and I said, that's great. Thank you for letting us know that. Here's how we can resolve that. Here's what we would want. And once the student went there, they realized the student did have the theory. Um, and it was just training them as a new student um, or um, a new, a new um, what is the word I'm looking for? A new employee mm -hmm. hire. Um, and it made it easier for them. And now they're opening their doors to accept more students because they see that the students is coming from the institutions with this knowledge in hand. Right. And I'm, I'm assuming that once clinics or, or laboratories start to see that return on investment, then they're usually more open to uh, keeping the process going. I do want to switch a little bit because um, I want to talk about you and how you grew this passion within yourself. You know, we're all advocates in our own way, but um, you having such passion and advocacy for your local area, how have you used your own personal growth to um to increase your advocacy. I, I know you're um, active within the ASCP. Um, I, it sounds like you're active in your local community. So um, what has been your personal growth and your pathway to become such an advocate for the profession? Well, <laughs> being an African-American female growing up in what they call the hood, right? Mm -hmm. Which is a financially disadvantaged uh, community, um, typically of color, um, but not necessarily, mm -hmm. um, or some people call it an urban community. Mm -hmm. um, there weren't many opportunities for um, people like me. Mm -hmm. And in order to get the opportunities or the resources, you had to know someone. Mm -hmm. um, it wasn't readily available to everyone. Mm -hmm. um, I saw, as I grew up, I saw a clear divide between how I was treated as a Black female and how my brother was treated as a Black male. The resources that I was able to tap into were not the same resources that he was able to tap into. Mm -hmm. That led us down very different paths. Mm -hmm. um, um, the school-to-prison pipeline is apparent in New York City. Um, and if you don't observe it, you won't see it. Um, and I was in that realm of not seeing it because I didn't know it existed. Um, and once I got into college, I realized, oh, this is bad. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I started to, I, I didn't know what I can do at that point. I just knew I wanted to do something 
public health related. I wanted to do something that gave back to the community because I got this far and I wanted other people to see that they can get this far too. And I wanted to be that resource to give to everyone. Mm -hmm. um, so when I became the program director of um, the medical laboratory technician program at Bronx Community College, I saw exactly where I could help my community. Um, Bronx Community College is a minority institution, mm -hmm. um, Hispanic and African-American predominantly. Mm -hmm. um, I saw how black and brown people were struggling. Um, I saw how they were not getting the salaries that they, they wanted. I saw how some people were working two and three jobs and still not making enough to support their families. I saw, I saw myself, mm -hmm. right, how my grandmother was unable to give me what I needed to be successful because she didn't have car fare for me, for example. Um, um, so there was a lot of things that were barriers to success. So what, what I wanted to do was use my platform, use my position to remove some of these barriers towards success and instead give the students opportunities. So one of the barriers, for example, was many of the students could not complete the 15 week internship because they had to pay tuition for it and then they had to pay um, to commute there and then they had to pay for their food, et cetera. Um, and if you don't have a job um, to save up to do that, it's really hard. And if you do have a job, most students have to quit their job or take a leave of absence while they're, while they're doing this 15 weeks so they have no income. So one of the things that I did was I recognized that that was a barrier toward their success and that's why some of the students were not coming into our program. I sought out areas where I can get them paid for their internship. So right now, students are paid $17 an hour to do the internship up to 25 hours a week. Um, so they have money to commute. Um, we also partnered with uh, ASAP. It's an ASAP program in Bronx Community College. Um, the Accelerated um, Student Study Program that helps to give students car fare, Metro cards. And Metro cards in New York City is super expensive. This, they're like $110 a month. Um, and if you're not working, $110 is a lot. Mm -hmm. So um, the ASAP program provides car fare um, for these students on internship and also provides book vouchers for these students that are enrolled in that program. So I try to get as many students into those programs um, that, that that's eligible um, so that they can take advantage of these resources. So we're removing the financial barrier. And then once they graduate, I work, I partnered with career services that we try to get them a job immediately upon graduation. So our students within the first three weeks, six weeks of graduating, they already have a job mm -hmm. um, lined up uh, and this way, that will also help replenish some of the money that was lost or not gained during this 15-week internship. The other thing we did was I went out and got a grant to pay for the ASCP exam and New York State licensure. Both combined is $498 that the student has to pay. Without income, you know, the student has to pay for their books. They have to pay for the internship. They have to pay for um, um, the money for... Um, the, the student fees on top of their car fare. So all mm -hmm. of these things I had to understand and then create resolves for each one. Mm -hmm. So that's how I gave back to my community. And because of that, we doubled the number of students enrolled in our program. So when I first started, we was enrolling 16 students a semester. Now we can enroll up to 32 students a, a semester. 
I mean, the work uh, to, to me, as you describe it, is just amazing, you know, getting down to the level of really what is what is creating a barrier, like you said, for students to increase and um, come into our program and then working one by one to remove those barriers, um, like like you said, uh, to to create a pathway and to remove all of the adversity that's standing in the way of any student. Um, that's what it truly means to have a, a diverse and e- equality and inclusive, you know, program, laboratory, et cetera. So, like I said, the work the work is amazing. You and I emailed back and forth, though, but you, you told me a little bit about um, your own story, you know, um, having the background that you've had, uh, microaggressions that you've experienced. And so we hear how you've been able to help your students get over adversity. But I'm wondering for yourself, how have you individually handled overcoming challenges that you may have faced and how have you used that to fuel um, your passion to continue to help your students? <laughs> good thing you good thing you brought that up because uh, dealing with the microaggression is literally a work in progress. <laughs> when they um, go low, you have to go high, Dr. Banks. You have to go high. And it's sometimes hard because you have to be motivated to go high. Yes. Right? Um I'm still dealing with it. Um, I at Bronx Community College, all the great work that I'm doing, um, you know, and besides all the great work that I'm doing with the students, I'm also I also have to publish and and do all this phenomenal work um, in the field and in industry. Um, but it's not recognized. Right. Mm-hmm. So because they don't understand our profession, mm-hmm. they don't understand the power that we wield. We have the life of a patient in our hands every day, every second of the day. If we don't know what we're doing, if we make a mistake, we are liable to kill someone. And that we hold, we, we have to hold that true. But other people that work around us don't understand the dynamics of our work. And because they don't understand the dynamics of our work and how we are superheroes, they look at us not as superheroes, but as a run of the mill. And so at Bronx Community College, for example, I'm fighting to to just get recognized for my work in the medical laboratory science field. And in my department, they're like, well, that's not really that's not really biology. So it's not really counted. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, it's clinical laboratory science. Mm-hmm. So so having people look at us as not a science is a problem and that creates microaggression because they feel like we're not enough. Right. And we need to do more to bring awareness to what we're doing. And that's one of the ways I'm fighting it at Bronx Community College to to crack open that door, to help people understand who we are and what we do. In the clinical laboratory, you know, I also moonlight there and I picked up the phone one day and I said, hi, this is Dr. Banks. Um, 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 I said, uh, you know, this is the clinical laboratory. This is Dr. Banks speaking. How may I help you? Um, long story short, the person on the other end was upset that I called myself Dr. Banks and called the laboratory manager and said, you have somebody, you have a tech calling themselves a doctor. And when it came back to me, I was just like, wow, this is why we have to get more of our clinical laboratory science people up and through these educational ranks. Yeah, that DCLS. 
yes, we need more people to get into the DCLS. We need more people to get PhDs. We need more people to um, to get it. And it's not just because you want it for yourself. You want it for the community. You want it because it's going to put you in a better position. You want it because it's going to elevate the profession, period. And mm -hmm. we need to elevate the profession. For example, right now I was on a call with the medical doctor who is um, overseeing the blood bank. And he said, one of the barriers to the workforce shortage is that they won't allow us to hire non-medical laboratory science degrees into, um, into blood bank. It's high complexity. I'm like, okay. It's like, we, we want to be able to hire, a, you know, someone with another degree. I have to say, excuse me, sir. If there was a workforce shortage in doctors and I have my, and I have a bachelor's degree, in chemistry, would you recognize me as a doctor? That's a good analogy. <laughs> would you want me to work on your parents in my, in, with the level of knowledge that I have? He said, oh, but it's not about that. It is about that because when you want to become a nurse, you take the nursing track. If you're not, if you do not have a nursing degree, then you have to go back to nursing school and get the yeah. nursing degree, take the nursing license. Yeah. Same with the medical doctors. Same with PAs. Why, mm -hmm. why is it different with laboratory professionals? And it's different because they're not us. Yeah. We have to show strength in what we do. We have to come out of the shadows. We have to make them aware. So the reason you can't hire uh, someone with a psychology degree as a blood banker is because they do not have the clinical knowledge. The same reason why you won't hire a, 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 a someone with a biology degree as a nurse or someone with a biology degree as a medical doctor is the same reason why you should not hire a blood banker with a bachelor's in psychology. So if somebody is listening right now and they're, they're not in their head, nobody can see me, but I'm not in my head like crazy. I'm going to have a headache after this um, because Dr. Banks is over here speaking nothing but the truth. She hadn't told a lie yet, but if, if somebody else out there is listening and they say she is completely right and I need to get where she is, I need to increase my own professional visibility in this field. I need to not be running the mill. I need to demand recognition. I need to come back from out of the shadows. I need to shed that stigma of um, a behind the scenes hero. I know we celebrated during lab week, but that's not going to get us anywhere. What would you advise them to do? Well, uh, the first thing I would I would do is create an education pathway for the employees. So it's, it's multifaceted, right? And it's going to be multifaceted based on where you are. So if you are a clinical laboratory science professional already, then you want to talk about how you can get your employees into these education institutions. In New York City, we have, a we have two master degree programs. We have Long Island LIUCW Post, and we have New York Medical College in Valhalla. Um, so we have one in Brooklyn and one in Valhalla. Um, we, you know, try to get people, encourage employees to go that route. And so that we can get more supervisors out of that, out of that um, bucket of people. We also want to encourage people to get into the DCLS program. Now, I understand the DCLS program is really hard to get into um, because you have to have um, a medical laboratory science degree. But there are other um, 
P there's PhDs that's, that one can get, a PhD in cellular molecular biology, a PhD in immunology and, and microbiology, a PhD in hematology, for example. We need to figure out these pathways, illuminate the pathways, and then encourage people to go into those pathways. Um, we also need to create scholarships mm -hmm. because some places outside of New York are not paying well. And so even if that is an option for them, how are they going to pay that? How are they going to cover that um, tuition? So creating scholarship programs is best. On a national level, I spoke, uh, I spoke about this before. We have the National Health Scholarship Program, right? And they give um, nurses and doctors and rad radiology um, um, technicians money to work in underserved um, communities. They pay their loans back. We need to include the medical laboratory science profession in that bucket. Um, so it's multifaceted. We need to um, just start going to these consortiums at our hospitals and speaking truth to power. Mm -hmm. You know, when a doctor is going to is having these rounds, we need to be part of that. We need to be part of that that healthcare team. Um, doctors don't know that they can rely on us to say which tests they can run mm -hmm. or which tests should they run. Mm -hmm. We should. We should propose ourselves in this area as an expert and say, you want to run, you, you have an issue with the patient, consult us. Yeah. Let us help you figure out what tests you can run. Because to them, they orchestrate what tests we run. Yes, in some way, but we can also have that be a two-way street and say, here's what I suggest that you run. Here's where the, 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 the results are leaning toward. And this way, it's a two-way street. Mm -hmm. Right now, the doctors see it as a one-way street. Mm -hmm. We need to create that. So it's multifaceted, and, and all, all the, the recommendations that I'm making here are not the, not the silver bullet. All of us have great ideas, and we need to compound these great ideas to create some type of policy or program um, to move the, move the needle on this. The other thing is what we need to do is advertise. We need money, we need funding, we need hospitals to put money into a bucket where we can use to advertise. Just like nursing has advertisements and doctors have advertisements, clinical laboratory professionals, we need ads going on um, regular TV, going on cable TV, going on social media, et cetera. So right now what I've done in my little small pocket of the world, I have a grant. First, I started with two grants from ASCP, Educators um, Grant. I used that grant to create ad space on social media. Um, that helped me to increase um, the enrollment by 100%, right, in the last two years. So we're, we're bringing in 32 students a semester. Um, and we were able to do that because of that ad space. So ads work. Um, the other thing I did was I, I, I got I work on a grant that now allows me to run six weeks of ads in New York City for the clinical laboratory profession. And I'm not, not I'm not just doing I'm not just doing this for Bronx Community College. I'm doing this for the profession, period, because once I get the student into Bronx Community College and they graduate, I then get them into the senior colleges. They graduate, they're working as technicians and then as technologists, and they're going to continue that trajectory. So we're building advocacy one student at a time. We're building marketing one student at a time, and we're we're doing what we can in this little pocket 
of the world that I have right here. <laughs> you're doing a lot. And I also know even outside of that, you're you volunteer um, with, like I mentioned before, you know, national organizations like the ASCP. You've got so many certifications. You're doing so much publishing and collaboration, collaborating with conferences to get the message out and get your message out. Um, as we wrap up, what would be in a piece of advice that you would give the listeners so that they can, you know, take that extra step, go above and beyond, be more visible um, and be more of an advocate than they may be doing right now. So the first thing I'm going to say is what I do cost, right? And it, it costs in time. So doing what I do, um, yeah, it's going to, it's going to cost your time, um, time with your family, time with your friends. Um, it's going to cost time. Uh, have, setting up these meetings, um, it's time consuming. But if we're all doing this together, and that's the theme, right? Everyone together, if we're all doing this together, then we don't have to spend so much time educating the un, the population. We can do this in a national level. We can do this, you know, at the, at the community level. I think that we need to carve out some time in our day or the month to do this advocacy work. And maybe not what I'm doing on my level, I do it seven days a week, maybe not on my level, but if if you can do an hour a week or four hours in a month, go to a high school, um, talk, talk about the clinical laboratory profession at a high school, um, that will help. Go to your administrators and have a conversation with them about how important your job is and how you can how how the laboratory science profession can actually benefit the hospital and 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 save the hospital money or generate the hospital revenue um we need to start going to these meetings and talking to each other about what we're doing in different spaces and places so that we can bring that back and we can come to our administrators with a more robust dialogue and a robust narrative on how we can we can better the profession. But I, if everyone can volunteer just one hour a week or four hours a month um, to do this advocacy work, um, I think I think I think it would turn the tide mm-hmm. on the profession. I think so, too. I think what you have to do is get people um, to see, you know, a lot of people sit back and say, oh, the the ASCP or X, Y and Z organization isn't doing enough. And um, what people really have to see is that those that we are those organizations. And, you know, if you want to see change, you have to be the change you want to see which means you have to step up. You have to volunteer. If you have an idea, you have to get on a committee um, and help work that idea through fruition. Um, And like I said, be the change that you want to see. You can't be sitting back and and complaining and being the problem that doesn't move anybody agendas forward. Um, But I think this has been so productive. I mean, if you don't walk away from listening to this episode, wondering, you know, what else can I do for my local area um, I, I don't know. I mean, you have been so inspiring, Dr. Banks. Um, make sure I'll, I'll make sure to work with Dr. Banks to try to add as many links as possible um, to some of the publications that she's mentioned, um, because I, I'm sure our listeners would want to go and follow your work. But uh, like I said, as we wrap up, can you tell our listeners who want to connect with you more, who maybe want to be mentored or just hear more about what you're doing in your local area or get your thoughts on what they can do in their local area, how they can reach out to you and connect to you? 
Absolutely. Um, and, and just so you know, I'm not perfect. <laughs> I don't claim to be perfect. I make mistakes. Uh, I learn from them. Um, but I'm always willing to help someone. Um, uh, and I might not have the answers, but I might be able to refer you to someone or, you know, so if so anybody wants to reach out to me, um, they can do so at Diane.Banks. That's D-I-A-N-E dot B-A-N-K-S. Uh, banks at bcc um, dot c u n y that's for um, city university new york dot edu so diane dot banks at bcc dot c u n y dot edu um, and I will try to help as much as I can or um, tell you what I'm doing and and you don't have to do what I'm doing. Um, put your own spin on it. Put your own pizzazz on it. Help me learn from you. <laughs> you call me with advice. I take <laughs> advice. I give advice. Um, it's It's all love here. Thank you so much for joining me, Dr. Banks. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Well, if you like what you heard today, like I said in the beginning, make sure you subscribe to our podcast on any place where you get your podcast from. Uh, also, join us on our Elaborate Topics group on LinkedIn so you can keep track of all of these topics or give us suggestions of other things you would like to hear from us. Uh, if you want to connect to Dr. Banks, I'll put her email in the show notes. And as always, thank you for joining us on another episode of the Elaborate Topics. And until next time, have a great day. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Elaborate Topics, where your hosts discussed relevant strategies for laboratory professionals. Please subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast platform and listen to us on directimpactbroadcasting.com. Stay tuned for another episode with information you can use to excel in your laboratory career.